Thanks so much, Millie. It's an honor to share a podium with, uh, with Frank Ferrey, who is the primary author of the recent ACG guidelines, and Millie, who's really responsible for a lot of the evidence that, goes, uh, that went into uh, providing uh, a rationale behind the guidelines, as we'll talk about. So we're going to spend the next 20 minutes or so talking about what were the recent ACG guidelines regarding vaccination recommendations for inflammatory bowel disease, as well as some updates that have come out even since those were published just over a year ago. So uh, this is really by way of background, is recognizing that we as gastroenterologists take care of a lot of patients, we do a lot of things, but we take care of patients with inflammatory bowel disease and we prescribe medications that most of our GI colleagues uh, who don't see patients with IBD may not be familiar with, as well as some of our primary care providers that we work with also who may generally be involved with primary care administering vaccinations for their patients may not understand the medications that we're using. So that led to the background for really trying to get a sense of what are gastroenterologists doing out there. Uh, this, uh, this is data shown from uh, both Canada and North America, a Canadian survey of 167 patients with IBD, as well as their doctors. This was done in Manitoba, where they were actually able to link patients and their doctors to find out what were patients thinking in terms of who was giving them advice and whose advice would they like to he uh, heed the most when it came to vaccination uh, recommendations. Patients were most confident in their GI doctors as the correct source of information about vaccinations, more so than their primary care physicians, more so than any other source of information. But only 14% were immunized or received immunization recommendations from their GI doctor. Uh, when they interviewed those same doctors of those patients, almost half of them didn't know which vaccines to avoid, for example, in patients who are immune suppressed, and none of the doctors at the time thought that they had enough information regarding immunizations. Now, this was done about 10 years ago. I uh, wonder if this survey were repeated today if we would have similar results. Uh, and actually, the second survey of ACG members, this was done by Frank Ferre and his group, uh, looking at, uh, at ACG members where gastroenterologists surveyed through the ACG, and maybe some of you in the room participated in this survey, most gastroenterologists think it's the primary care provider's responsibility. It's not my responsibility. I'm, I'm the one who's taking care of the patients with IBD. The primary care should be providing the vaccinations. Um, many of the ACG respondents reported incorrectly that they would administer live vaccines to patients who are immune suppressed, and significant knowledge gaps were identified. We performed a survey at our institution in Cedar sinai um, in Los Angeles where many of um, our zip codes around Cedars unfortunately have low rates of immunization. The, actually, there's rates of immunization are inversely proportionate to certain affluent areas where patients or parents may choose not to vaccinate their children. Uh, but we, we found that uh, in the blue bars are patients who are identified or children um, with IBD who are identified as being at risk for various immune preventable conditions. And then in the red bars uh, are, the are the proportion of patients who actually receive the recommended vaccinations. And what you can see here is that there's a significant gap between the blue and the red. And this is not intended to be political here. We just noticed that there was a significant gap here and lots of room for improvement. And what was also notable was that 80% of the patients reported having seen their primary care provider within the prior year. So they saw their primary care provider, but they weren't getting the appropriate vaccinations or the recommendations. And when we asked them why not, a lot of them were simply, simply told us that nobody told me what I should be getting. And this was for some basic uh, recommendations such as the flu shot. So vaccination and recommendations around vaccinations have percolated now down into the gastroenterology community over the last 10 years. And really the ACG recommendations that were published last year were a culmination of a lot of those efforts. 
Um, some of the recommendation highlights that I want to go through, uh, I'll point out here and we'll summarize at the end and then in between I'll want to show you some of the data that goes into what these recommendations were. So all patients should be annually vaccinated against influenza. That's a very simple, straightforward, actionable statement. Pneumococcal vaccination with both the PCV13, the conjugate vaccine, and the PPSV23, the pneumovax, uh, are recommended in patients who are immunosuppressed, and I'll talk to you about how we would think about sequencing those vaccines. All patients over the age of 50 should be vaccinated against herpes zoster. Varicella negative adults should be vaccinated before starting immune suppressive therapy if possible. And when it comes to HPV vaccine, which is uh, now licensed and approved and recommended for ages 18 to 26, although I just learned from Frank and Millie that the FDA has uh, extended the age of approval now to age 46, is that right? 45, up until age 46. So uh, HPV vaccine uh, for women with IBD on immunosuppressive therapy, they should be undergoing annual cervical cancer screening as well and thinking about this vaccine in women and in men as we'll talk about. So one of the distinctions that the guidelines go through um, in terms of thinking about our patients with inflammatory bowel disease is recognizing which vaccines are live and which vaccines are not live is a basic distinguishing factor for thinking about which vaccines can we safely administer to patients depending on the medication status at the time. So we think about live vaccines and non-live vaccines. Those live vaccines are attenuated uh, or weak in form of, of a live virus. Uh, they actually need to be replicating inside the body in order to achieve and stimulate an immune response. Therefore, they can pose a theoretical risk to the recipient, especially if that recipient is immune compromised. Uh, and the, also the vaccination storage and handling is, is, uh, is, is uh, individualized and uh, carefully done because these are actually live vaccines. As opposed to the inactivated vaccines, these are killed or by heat or by chemicals um, and uh, cannot replicate and therefore uh, don't in, uh, uh, confer a, a, a potential risk of actual conferring infection when administered to a recipient. So when patients tell us, oh, I'm afraid of getting a flu shot because I'm afraid of getting the flu, you cannot get the flu from a flu vaccine, a flu shot, because that is an inactivated killed vaccine. Another distinction that the guidelines make in terms of thinking about this question in general is low level versus high level of immunosuppression. And this actually comes from a specific statement by the CDC with respect to zoster vaccine, the older zoster which vaccine, which was a live zoster vaccine. And we'll talk about the zoster vaccine in more detail. Uh, when we think about low level of, low level of immune suppression, perhaps we may be more flexible for a non-live, for a live vaccine, excuse me, like the zoster vaccine, um, because that risk may not be as great in somebody who has a low level of immune suppression. What's a low level of immune suppression? Corticosteroids, prednisone equivalent of 20 milligrams a day or less, or methotrexate or azathioprine at doses that we would typically use in inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, for example, azathioprine less than 3 milligrams per kilogram per day or 6 mercaptopurine less than or equal to 1.5 milligrams per kilogram per day and within 3 months of stopping. So that would be considered low level of immune suppression. What is high level of immune suppression? High level would be more than that, basically more than 20 milligrams of prednisone a day, more than those doses of azathioprine or methotrexate, which I mentioned. Typically, not what we would be using in IBD. And also treatment with biologics or with discontinuation within three months, according to those guidelines. 
So let's dive into some of the specific vaccines and talk about some of the data that goes behind them. So when we think about influenza, this was a, re a recently published study looking at influenza incidence, um, and this was done and uh, looked at uh, claims data of over 140,000 patients looking at risk of influenza and patients with IBD compared to people in, in the U.S. without inflammatory bowel disease, overall demonstrating that patients with IBD, both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, have an increased risk of influenza relative to non-IBD controls. Um, notably, when they looked at all the different medications that patients may be on, only corticosteroids jumped out as uh, a medication that increased, um, associated with an increase in that risk. But not only are patients with IBD at higher risk for getting influenza, but if they do get influenza, their risk of complications, specifically a concomitant pneumonia or being hospitalized for that influenza, is greater if you have IBD relative to controls. So it's not just getting the flu, it's also getting a complication from the flu. Who should get vaccinated? We're now in the flu season, so I hope everybody here has gotten or will short, soon be getting their influenza vaccine because the guidelines really are ubiquitous. Everybody over the age of six months, with very few exceptions, should be getting the influenza vaccine. Emphasis should be placed on vaccination of high-risk groups and their contacts and caregivers. So if you take care of patients, you're a caregiver, and presumably you're here because you take care of patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And so certainly in times where there's shortage of vaccine, and uh, we hearken back to those days when it was difficult to find flu shots sometimes. In the, you can see in the back alley there, um, sometimes trading you know, for drugs, people would, you know, uh, I remember bringing home a, a, a flu vaccine back in the days when it was um, hard to get and, uh, and the neighbors coming over to get their flu shots. So uh, we think about our high-risk groups, those who are immunosuppressed, those who are healthcare workers or potential transmitters of the flu, and household contacts of high-risk individuals. So not, not just your patients, but also remembering the household contacts of your patients because they live in the same household as somebody who may be potentially immunosuppressed. So when it comes to influenza vaccination and IBD, there have been several studies that have looked at the question of uh, what is the immune response to patients uh, in patients who are immune suppressed, for example, who may be on biologic therapy, on infliximab, getting it cyclically. Does it matter when you actually get the vaccine in terms of determining the type of response one is going to get from the vaccine? In general, IBD does not impact uh, the response itself. Um, immunosuppression, however, may impact the immune response, and the more heavily immune-suppressed one might be, and in this case of the, many of the studies which were done with anti-TNF therapy, being on combination therapy with both an anti-TNF drug and an immunomodulator uh, seem to have the greatest likelihood of a poor immune response to the vaccine. Notably, though, in several studies uh, where they looked at the risk of adverse events from vaccination, there does not seem to be a higher risk of adverse events in patients with IBD, no higher risk of flares. You might think that by giving a vaccine, you're stimulating an immune response that does not seem to translate into a trigger for inflammatory uh, activity. And when we think about influenza, we go back to the uh, great influenza epidemic of 1918. Influenza frequently complicated by pneumonia. And again, that's something that Andrew Tinsley just showed us, published last month, um, that influenza um, does actually confer greater risk of getting pneumonia. And back in those days, the, the best thing you could do if you had the flu was to go home and go to bed until you are well. Don't go to work, don't go to the movies, don't go to the opera house, as this bulletin tells us. 
Um, and in, uh, in those days, the treatment for uh, the flu was Horlick's malted milk. Um, I'm not sure that our treatments today, um, you know, how, how good they are, but certainly we do have some therapies available. Uh, but really, it's, it's uh, staying home and, and not, uh, not exposing others. Uh, even, I, th I found this, uh, all church churches were ordered closed to stop the spread of influenza. And the bottom line there says even funeral services at churches will not be permitted. And you can think in those days, there was a lot of death associated with the flu. Um, how serious they took uh, these public health measures and how uh, reminds us that we need to take these seriously uh, as well today. So in talking about the flu leading on to pneumonia, now another respiratory infection that is vaccine preventable, pneumonia risk is also increased in, in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. This is data from Millie Long. Uh, and, uh, and Millie showed us that, in fact, this risk of pneumonia is very significant in patients with IBD, again, both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis relative to non-IBD controls. And when we look at it uh, broken down by medication, which medications are most likely to confer the greatest risk? It's not the thiopurines and biologics. Again, it's corticosteroids, and in this case, narcotic medications. Corticosteroids and narcotic medications confer the greatest risk of getting pneumonia if you have IBD. We did a study looking at a, uh, all of the, the literature, essentially, in the rheumatology and GI space to try to address the question, what actually, uh, is there an impairment in vaccine responses? What might, impair, might be associated with impairment of vaccine responses? Looking at a bunch of different vaccines, and this, what I'm showing you here are pneumococcal and influenza vaccines. And if you really look at the last, row, uh, last column here, is the response of the vaccine diminished by anti-TNF therapy? And the answer is no in every study where anti-TNF therapy was used alone. In studies where anti-TNF therapy was used in combination with immunomodulators or methotrexate or, or uh, thiopurines, then there did seem to be an impairment in vaccine response. Uh, this was a study that we did looking at pneumococcal vaccine, and you can see here in the blue are the patients with IBD who were treated with the combination anti-TNF and immunomodulators, and the orange are patients just with five ASAs, and in the yellow are um, are healthy controls. Looking at five out of the 23 serotypes in this vaccine, and all of the blue bars are lower than the other two, again showing us that um, you have an impaired response if you're vaccinated while on combination therapy. By the way, it doesn't mean you don't have any response. You do have a response. It's just not as robust as it might otherwise have been. And subsequent to that, there actually was approval of the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine. So what I showed you earlier was the pneumococcal um, uh, uh, pneumococcal vaccine, which is the pneumovax. Um, this is the, now, now that we have the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, which is a more powerful vaccine, that's the 13-valent uh, vaccine, there are recommendations for how we should think about optimizing vaccination against pneumonia for immunosuppressed patients. The broad uh, uh, pneumococcal vaccine of the 23 serotypes, these are the 23 um, most common serotypes, uh, as opposed to the 13, which are the 13 most virulent serotypes. And by getting a combination of both of these vaccines, our patients are protected both against what's broadly out there as well as what's uh, most virulent. Um, and then there are vaccine guidelines as to how we're supposed to think about these vaccines. So ideally, patients should be getting both. The PCV13, the, uh, the uh, conjugate vaccine, uh, they get once, and the, and the uh, pneumococcal uh, polysaccharide 23-valent vaccine, they get twice five years apart. If a patient is naive to both, you start with the PCV13, two to 12 months later, you get your 23-valent 
pneumovax, and then five years later you get your booster shot. And then uh, for a patient who's already had their pneumovax once, there's a slightly altered schedule which can be shown below and these slides will be available and can easily be looked up. But the point is, is that patients will need to get both vaccines if they're immune suppressed. Moving on to uh, HPV. HPV has been linked with cervical and anal cancers in women and anal cancers in men. Uh, women with IBD have an increased risk for an abnormal pap smear, which has been shown now in a few studies. That increased risk is associated with immunomodulator use, immunosuppression, and not only that, but patients with women with IBD in particular have a higher risk for high-risk serotypes of HPV that have been more associated with cervical cancer. It's important to also recognize that when it comes to cervical cancer screening, uh, with pap smears, uh, some of the later guidelines do endorse uh, longer periods, not no longer annual, but every three years, or even in some cases every five years for women to get screened. That doesn't apply to women who are on immunosuppressive therapy. So to be thinking about um, those guidelines for your patients, your, your female patients who may be uh, on immunosuppressive therapy. Um, for the studies that have been done that looked at HPV vaccines in women with IBD in particular, those vaccines did seem to be safe and effective um, in uh, determining, a, a getting, uh, obtaining immune response and also not being associated with flares of IBD or other adverse effects. In general, uh, coming back to the point that we started with, live vaccines are generally considered contraindicated in patients who are immunosuppressed, and we discussed what immunosuppression actually is, and we discussed what live vaccines are, and these are some examples of live vaccines. So the live attenuated influenza virus, which I don't believe is available this year, that's the intranasal flumist, um, yellow fever vaccine, which is a live vaccine, has been associated with some very nasty side effects uh, like encephalitis in patients who are immunosuppressed, even death. A BCG vaccine, which is not recommended in the United States, but is in many other countries. MMR, measles, mumps, rubella in children, varicella, and the zoster, which we're going to talk uh, uh, more about, the zoster vaccine. When we think about live vaccines, some pearls from the Infectious Disease Society, the most recent guidelines that they published a few years ago, uh, when it comes to live vaccines, one question that comes up is how long does one typically wait before starting immune suppression after a live virus vaccine? And their recommendations are waiting at least four weeks. Um, not to give live virus vaccines in patients who are immune suppressed. And then to think about household contacts. It's not just our patients who are immune suppressed that we need to think about not giving live vaccines to. We also have to consider what's, what their household contacts may be receiving. So MMR, rotavirus for infants, varicella and zoster, yellow fever, oral typhoid, these are these are vaccines that household contacts of your patients can safely receive with some caveats. For example, in uh, patients who have, for example, a child may be getting the varicella vaccine, you need to watch for a rash in the recipient of the vaccine because that rash could actually uh, potentially be contagious. Uh, however, uh, one should be careful to counsel your patients to make sure that no one in their household gets the live influenza vaccine or the live polio vaccine. Let's talk about uh, herpes zoster, and we're going to talk a little bit more. I know Frank's going to be addressing it as well. Uh, talk about uh, herpes, herpes zoster and the risk for zoster in IBD. This is data, again, shown to us from uh, Millie's data, showing that the risk of zoster is significant in patients with IBD, significantly higher than patients uh, without IBD, and again, both true for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And what's interesting is Millie here on the right was able to look at the age strata every decade of life and showing us that that risk of a higher rate of zoster is true in every single decade of life. So an 11-year-old with IBD has a higher risk of zoster than an 11-year-old without IBD, and so on and so forth for every decade of life. 
Um, and the question then comes up is, how do we think about uh, zoster risk in our patients with IBD? The guidelines really are not selective, at least the general guidelines that are out there. The rate, the rate uh, sorry, the um, recommendation for who should be getting zosters over the age of 50 overall. And that's really where the studies have looked at, and that's what our recommendations state. But if we look at Millie's data, and with your permission, Millie, I'll take it a step uh, beyond what you've published, is that if we look at where the, our society has determined at age 50 as a cutoff for vaccinating, because that's just uh, where the, the benefits of vaccination are felt so significantly, is at a rate of about 800 cases per 100,000 patients. That's when we see that rate, that risk in the 50 to 60-year-old population and then patients without IBD. We can draw, take that mark, walk that red line back, and if we can see here that our patients with IBD in their 20s and 30s are approaching that red line as well. So even though uh, in the general population patients may reach that risk at their, when they're 50 to 60 years old, our patients with IBD are hitting that same risk in their 20s and 30s. And so maybe I would just pose this to the audience as a question without an answer, should we be vaccinating our patients at younger ages, or maybe perhaps down to their 20s uh, with IBD? And we'll see what our guidelines and what our data teach us over the next few years about that risk and about our ability to mitigate that risk. So when we think about herpes zoster, uh, this is again data from Millie's paper, what about uh, medications and how do they influence that risk? And what you can see here is that there are medications associated with that risk. Biologics may increase that risk two to, two to threefold. Thiopurines may increase that risk up to twofold. Um, and again, this is both in, seen in Crohn's disease and uh, ulcerative colitis. And of course, uh, our friends, the corticosteroids, very significantly implicated in uh, almost doubling that risk of zoster. What about tofacitinib? This is one of the questions that you had in the ARS to start with. And the clinical trials for tofacitinib and ulcerative colitis have shown us that there is an increased risk of herpes zoster in patients treated with tofacitinib. Uh, and this is true. Uh, this seems to be a, a dose-dependent effect. That risk uh, goes up in the 10 milligram BID group, group compared to the 5 milligram BID group, as you can see here, from 1.5% up to 5%, um, with, a, with a less than 1% rate of zoster seen in patients treated with placebo. Most of the patients, fortunately, that were affected were affected with only one dermatome or two adjacent dermatomes. Uh, and there, again, the, what increases the risk, it seems to be a dose-dependent effect, also increasing with age. As I showed you, age is an independent risk factor for zoster. Asian race and prior anti-TNF use were also associated with an increased risk of zoster. Fortunately, disseminated and multidermatomal events uh, are rare. And now uh, we do have two zoster vaccines available, a live vaccine, which I've discussed, and a non-live vaccine. The non-live vaccine is something that can be given to patients who are immunosuppressed. It's two doses, which are two to six months apart. That's two doses, if you remember to your ARS questions, two doses, two to six months apart. No need to check zoster titers, according to the CDC. We don't really know what the effects might be on immune activation. This hasn't really been formally studied, but we are eager to learn about what happens to patients with IBD when they are given this vaccine. Um, and the CDC does come out very clearly that this is a preferred vaccine over the live vaccine. So to summarize for you, we've gone through a lot of data and a lot of recommendations about our uh, IBD vaccination recommendations. In general, we should be thinking about treating our patients with IBD and following their age-appropriate vaccination schedules as if they, whether they have IBD or not. But there are some special considerations that we need to think about for our patients with IBD, particularly those that are on immunosuppression or those that are about to start immunosuppressive therapies. So the particular things we need to think about 
annual vaccination against influenza. Annual vaccination against influenza. That's something we can all do when we go back to our offices later this week. Adult patients with IBD who are on immunosuppressive therapy should be getting vaccinated against pneumonia with both the pneumococcal conjugate and the pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccines in order to confer both broad and deep uh, protection. Adults over the age of 50 should receive vaccination against herpes zoster, and there's no need to check varicella status in doing so, and the preferred vaccine would be the non-live Shingrix vaccine. And finally, the routine vaccines against what we think of Tdap, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, and HPV should be administered as per the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice Guidelines, the ACFP guidelines, which would apply to basically anybody in an age-appropriate fashion. So thank you very much for your attention.